This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brown. Today, we continue our mini-series on global learning metrics during the lead-up to the inaugural CIES Symposium, which will take place in Scottsdale, Arizona this November. So far in this mini-series, we've heard why international assessments can be valuable for national governments and how many governments have begun to see like PISA. Today, we jump into a case study of the way in which countries learn from one another based on international assessments. My guest, Professor Bob Adamson, takes us through the case of how England learned from Hong Kong. The government was concerned about England's performance in the rankings, and so it looked to those places that were performing extremely well. Policymakers came over to Hong Kong. They wanted to see what they wanted to see. He thinks this sort of selective learning is actually akin to a pantomime. And the minister actually called education researchers the blob. So that's sort of demeaning them and creating almost a cartoon character, which struck us as something like a pantomime. You hear somebody who comes on and you boo and you hiss when every time this character appears. The larger implication of the rise of superficial policy referencing among countries is the challenge it brings to comparative education. I think the whole of comparative education has been hijacked. Bob Adamson is Chair Professor of Curriculum Reform and Director of the Center for Lifelong Learning, Research and Development at the Education University of Hong Kong. In December 2015, Bob was named UNESCO Chairholder in Technical and Vocational Education and Lifelong Learning. Bob Adamson, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you, Will. So Hong Kong and England may seem like totally different places, uh, especially for people who have been to both locations. But international assessments have brought them together in a very strange way. And, and you've, been, you've been looking at this uh, for some time now. So how has England, the, the former colonial power, viewed Hong Kong's international assessment scores, say, in the early 2000s? Well, let me begin by the very first point about the differences between the two. I mean, as you mentioned, Hong Kong was a colony of um, Britain, and it did import a lot of the features of uh, the British education system. So that's a point of similarity. But um, in terms of how Hong Kong was viewed by Britain, I don't think it was on the radar screen at all until the power of these international student assessments became so important. You know, the great attention that's paid to league tables in education really became the fad later in the 2000s and also with the the British government um, being elected on a, a, a mandate to really address education issues. And so when the the British government, and I should really clarify that I'm talking about education policy for England, given the um, devolved nature of education within the UK, the government was concerned about England's performance in the rankings. And so it looked to those places that were performing extremely well. And East Asia, with Singapore, 
Hong Kong and more recently Shanghai and uh, South Korea were the high performers. So they decided, well, what are they doing so well um, that we can learn from? And that was why Hong Kong um, became a target of interest and emulation. So it's it's interesting, right? Because the as you said, Hong Kong imported a lot of ideas in education from the colonial power, from England. And England more or less didn't look too closely at Hong Kong's education system until there was these international assessments. And then things changed. Yes, and it was really um, part of the colonial mentality that uh, Hong Kong was seen as dependent on, on Britain. And I, I should say it wasn't kind of direct exportation. There were some general frameworks, general ideas, but Hong Kong did have considerable autonomy in kind of adapting British models. So I, I would see it more as um, the education as being British-style education, but with distinctive Hong Kong characteristics. So it wasn't a, a very close relationship in, in, in those kind of terms. But Britain really in the 2000s underwent a bit of a crisis in education. It was part of the time when education became very strongly linked with economic productivity. And so it was viewed that if with the things like the Asian economic crisis impacting strongly and the the, then the, the banking problems in 2008 and the economic problems that um, Britain found itself facing, education was seen as a way of pulling the economy together and getting a new focus. And, and, and that's how they started looking around and um, using comparative education uh, as a strategy in policymaking. So these domestic factors in the early 2000s obviously... Um, created the impetus for the UK or, or England to look to look abroad, like you said, in, in comparative ways to to learn from others. But what about as future PISA results or international assessments results came out, and Hong Kong continued to do well? And I'm thinking most recently on uh, in 2012 when Hong Kong scored, you know, virtually in the top, if not at the top. Um, across reading and math and science. Have, has England and the policymakers in England looked at Hong Kong differently? I think it's more complex than that. In, the, in terms of the politics, in England specifically, there was an ideological battle going on. The, um, the party in power, in fact, in fact, two parties in power as a coalition government, were fairly traditional conservative politicians, and particularly those in charge of education policy. They were looking at things like back to basics, we've got to do more grammar in language, we've got to do mathematics, we've got to get away from skills-based and competence-based education, all the newfangled ideas. These were seen as kind of left-wing or even Marxist approaches to education and producing a kind of society that they didn't want. And they took on the education establishment. They took on the leading education research universities. 
and it became oppositional. It became, it became really a, almost an ideological warfare. And so to find some ammunition to support the directions that the education policy in England would take, they looked for countries which they could associate with these kind of traditional approaches. Now, that's why they rejected Finland. They went to have a look at Finland, which is a leading European example. But they decided it was much too socialist for their taste, much too about equity and about individualism. So East Asia was more attractive because of this kind of traditional mindset that would support the more conservative policymakers in their attempts to reform education by fighting against the fairly progressivist agenda that many of the educators in, the, in England were pushing for. So what makes up this, you know, quote unquote idea of traditional education in, in my mind is that it, it still seems rather colonial even to, to suggest that. I think it's colonial in the sense that it is generational passing on of the great literature of the past, of seeing academics as disciplines rather than skills based that we look, for example, at the tradition of the public schools in England, where many of the policymakers actually were educated themselves, um, looking at issues of discipline, uh, the teachers in control of the classroom, students paying attention, students listening, um, a kind of reduction in the importance of the student voice and individualism in education, and also the political issue that if you use league tables as your goal politically, as your measure of political success, as say a Minister of Education might do, it's also what you're going to be bashed over the head with if your country's ranking slips. So how do you get your ranking score higher? Well, it's by performing better in assessment. Therefore, you need examination skills, you need more rote learning and memorization. So all those kind of factors brought about this whole movement that emphasized teacher-centeredness, content, looking at the history, looking at the traditions of education, rather than what was seen as a more progressivist view of a looser curriculum frame, cross-curricular skills, individualism and student voice. It's interesting that there is this whole discourse around student-centered learning, um, and yet you're saying that policymakers in the UK were emphasizing the need to have teacher-centered learning. Yes. There was a feeling that schools were failing academically, and academically was judged by results, examination results, and performance in these international uh, student assessments. So in order to be seen to have a world-class education system, as measured by a high ranking, then we needed to go back to basics. We needed to put the teacher back in control. We needed to have a body of knowledge that students would need to master and then reproduce in an examination. And hey presto, 
England would rise up the table, and also as a byproduct, the economy the economy would um, recover. We'd have a, a better workforce being produced, and all these other benefits as well. Oftentimes, we hear about the you know the East Asian countries that do so well on these international assessments um, as following a you know a quote unquote Confucian model of education. Did did the UK policymakers that were, you know, thinking Hong Kong was such a great place to emulate, were they using similar ideas in, in, in their understanding? I think they admired the characteristics that have become associated with Confucianism. Personally, I don't like the term Confucian heritage, because actually, if you look at Confucius, he was a progressivist. He believed in individualism and differentiated learning and so on. But over time, uh, there are certain aspects of education and values surrounding education which tie in with the ideological positioning that the policymakers in the UK wanted to replicate. And so what we have is the notion that education is important in East Asian societies. And I, I, my own view is I think it's because of, in Hong Kong's case, it's mainly a refugee society. It has an aristocracy, but um, not as deeply entrenched as, as, as in Britain, for example. And that education was the means to success, to social mobility. So parents would come in, particularly when you don't have a, a social welfare network, when, when there wasn't any provision for pension, and therefore you, you would rely on your children's future earnings for your own pension. Therefore, education was so important in order to get a good job, climb up the ladder, make a lot of money, and therefore take, um, take care of family responsibility. So education was seen as key. Um, Traditionally, also in Chinese culture, examinations were seen as the, the essential way of getting into the civil service in the imperial times. And so exams were seen as um, really the benchmark that, uh, you know, all this business of continual, continuous assessment or informal assessment, that's all just peripheral. What really counts is how well you perform under exam conditions. So that, again, had an influencing impact. And then you have the role of teacher. Teacher as being a whole life mentor, that it goes beyond just the classroom, that you're a teacher for life. And being a teacher has got quite an elevated status in society, much higher than it has in some countries in Europe, for example. And, and so all these elements create an image of a fairly traditional approach to education, which superficially, I think, is true. And that's what attracted the policymakers who were responsible for, for England. Um, so rather than Scotland, Scotland had its own agenda, and uh, to some extent Northern Ireland, but certainly the English were strongly influenced by this approach to education. It, it reminds me of, a, um, of an idea that Florian Waldo, who I spoke with on a previous show, 
uh, has written about. He, he used the term a projection screen. And it, you know, the, the policymakers in one country basically can project their own meaning uh, and their own interests using, you know, quote unquote, facts from other countries. So like looking at Hong Kong and basically, like you said, only understanding surface level and changing the meaning of some of these ideas and events in history to meet domestic political interests. I think that's a very accurate portrayal of what happened in Hong Kong. The policymakers came over. There were several high-flying high visits from education ministers to Hong Kong. They wanted to see what they wanted to see. So they were looking for things um, that would confirm their predispositions. And when they actually found contrary practices, they were outraged. Uh, There there, there was one story about when when the Hong Kong curriculum reforms were presented to one of the visitors from, from, from England. He actually stood up in public and said, oh, don't do this. You're, you're buying into this progressive agenda. Oh, you've swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. He actually protested, and it was really his projected image was being destroyed <laughs> under his very eyes. <laughs> so he had this um, reaction that was, it just displayed the fact that he'd come out to find something. He wasn't coming with an open mind, he was coming to confirm what he viewed as ideologically important, and so that he could have validity and justification by external referencing for for the reform agenda he, he was proposing. Hi Fresh Ed listeners, I'm Gustavo Fishman. We hope you are enjoying this seven-part mini-series on global learning metrics. If you have liked what you have heard or want to participate in the conversation, Please join us in Scottsdale, Arizona this November when the inaugural symposium on the Comparative and International Education Society will bring together these guests and more to debate the value and purpose of global learning metrics. Check out freshedpodcast.com for more details on the symposium. Hope to see you there. Bye. So let's let's turn to Hong Kong since you you mentioned that they were undergoing reforms as these English policymakers were visiting. So obviously Hong Kong education has not been static over the last decade or so. It's it's gone through changes and people probably perceive problems within their own system of education. So can you tell us a little bit about the the system of Hong Kong, um, the education system of Hong Kong, and perhaps you know how people see the system and, and perceive the system? Well, you have to know that about 50 years ago, Hong Kong's education system was very much band-aid, sticking plaster. Um, most people had primary education. They were lucky if they had nine years education. Uh, a lot of primary schools were did double shift schooling. They had a morning school and then a completely different school would occupy the same premises for the afternoon. And so it was very much um, basic provision of education. 
uh, mass education of fairly low quality because in those days Hong Kong's economic profile was light industry. Then with the development of China, a lot of the low-paid jobs moved across the border and Hong Kong had to reinvent itself as a service industry, banking, tourism, services and so on. And that required uh, quality education. So in the, from the 1980s, Hong Kong underwent a variety of reforms which were geared to match its new economic profile. Then, of course, you had the handover in 1997 when the British uh, handed uh, Hong Kong back to China and that brought in a new kind of uh, mindset, uh, greater integration with China, um, greater collaboration, uh, and, and in some ways more um, competition with Shanghai. And, and education then had to be scrutinized and it brought in a variety of changes. First of all, um, there was a feeling that the education system was too elitist. And if we're going to make education available all the way up to the end of secondary school, or high school, then it needed to be more relevant. And that's where skills-based education came in, attempts at more informal models of assessment, more mother tongue Chinese as a medium of instruction rather than using English as the medium of instruction in schools to make learning better. So in, in some ways there was a, what, what, what the uh, politicians from England would call a progressive ag agenda and to do this Hong Kong looked at Western places, um, Australia was a big model, Scotland, uh, to some extent Canada, parts of the USA and they looked and they learned and they adjusted this to, to meet the Hong Kong setting. Then there were major reforms as well around 2010 when they uh, abandoned the old British system of secondary education five years to O level and then another two years to A level before uh, leaving school. And they changed that to what's basically the China model of three years junior high and three years senior high with a single examination, the Hong Kong Diploma of Secondary Education at the end. Now that meant losing a year from a seven-year secondary to a six-year secondary. And so that in itself offered an opportunity for revising the, the, the curriculum. And again, they went for reforms which they felt were more 21st century skills, more about generic skills, problem solving, creativity, uh, rather than being too academic in its orientation. I find it incredible that at the time that English policymakers were looking at Hong Kong to learn from its system, Hong Kong policymakers were looking to Scotland and Australia and Canada to improve its system. Well, I, I was in Taiwan in 1997. And Taiwan were laughing, the officials I was, I, I was talking to. They said, oh, we've just received a delegation of academics and policymakers from England. They'd come to have a look at classroom discipline and teacher-centered classrooms. At the same time, we sent a delegation to the UK to look at student-centered learning, how to let students have more voice and how to make the classrooms more liberal because we are concerned about stifling creativity. Uh, 
So, you know, the, there is these circles of, you know, like a dog chasing its own tail going round and round. So uh, it's not just Hong Kong, it's, it's elsewhere as well. Yeah, and, it, and it, it seems like it's these, it's not necessarily about improving education, but rather advancing a particular domestic agenda. Yeah, advancing or following a pendulum swing or going round in circles, however you view the development of education, yeah. So in, in England, did they actually enact policies that they, you know, quote-unquote, learned from Hong Kong? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the most famous examples, um, it was more Shanghai that they, they imported teachers from Shanghai. But from Hong Kong specifically, um, they looked at autonomy. Um, they said that... Uh, Hong Kong schools had a high degree of autonomy in terms of school management, that school principals had uh, plenty of decision-making power. And this would be a very good model for the introduction of uh, more uh, taking away control of schools from the local education authority and setting up kind of independent schools. So the political ideology was to wrest the control of schools from the public sector and to get the private sector more involved. And to do that, they used the notion of autonomy. Because look, in Hong Kong, school leaders have got a great deal of autonomy and therefore they're able to produce high-performing students. Now, in reality, if you look at what autonomy means in Hong Kong, it means something entirely different. But that doesn't matter. The, the, the label autonomy autonomy is so slippery they can make it mean what they want while using Hong Kong as a justification even though it was something completely different. And what did it mean in Hong Kong? Well basically it was um, a move away from hyper bureaucracy. I mean in the old days if you wanted a, a packet of paper clips you had to apply to the the government for permission for a purchase order. Uh, so there was a degree of budgetary autonomy, also curriculum, um, that schools themselves could choose which electives they would offer in certain courses and so on. But actually, it was in a very, very limited frame. You know, there wasn't much scope, but at least they had some decisions within, within a very limited choice. And the other thing was a Hong Kong political agenda in that a lot of the schools in Hong Kong are actually managed by bodies such as the Catholic diocesan group, um, the Anglicans, the Buddhists, and other community groups. And these were seen as having their own agenda, which was not always in line with the Hong Kong government agenda. And one of the uh, reforms brought in was to bring in a new management body, which emasculated the power, say, of the Catholic element, and had more wider representation. So a school which was actually owned by the Catholic diocesan body, as an example, would find the, their ability to set the agenda strongly diluted by the government introducing a new management board which had greater representation and also government representation on it. So this became, um, again, autonomy became a label for actually uh, disguising what the, the government's agenda actually was. So earlier you said that um, 
policymakers, particularly like the minister of education uh, in countries, is oftentimes evaluated on on the on his or her ability to improve on these international rankings. In England, having adopted some of these different reforms, education reforms from abroad, from high-ranking countries that are ranking high on the international assessments. Has that actually improved? Like, has there been an improvement of England on PISA or other international assessments? Uh, We don't know yet. Um, The PISA results will be coming out shortly, and I think uh, that will be very revealing. Um, My own expectation is not too great. Uh, I mentioned earlier the Shanghai experiment where they imported teachers of mathematics from Shanghai, put them into schools in inner city schools and other schools in the south of England, and there was a BBC documentary, there was given a lot of hoo-ha and fanfare, but it's enormously problematic. Um, There might be some gains, but you can't just take something which is deeply embedded in the culture as teacher status, Uh, teaching approaches, and just transplant them into England and expect that particular flower to flourish. I mean, it's not going to happen. Um, There might be some superficial gains, but you need to have comprehensive change of the entire ecosystem, for want of a better word, before such a change can really take root and, 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 and flourish. So I would think that maybe there might be a small level of improvement, but I, I, I could be wrong, but I'm not expecting England to jump up the rankings highly significantly. So you, you've, you've called this whole process of, you know, borrowing ideas from other countries um, a political pantomime. What do you mean by that? Well, a pantomime is a form of entertainment which is very popular around Christmas time. And um, it's a bit like um, uh, Aristophanic comedy, a bit like Commedia dell'arte. It's um, you take a traditional fairy story and you present it like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And you present it with a bit of slapstick, with um, hissing and booing the villains, cheering the leading hero, there's a bit of romance, there's a lot of comedy involved, and it's it's a Christmas entertainment. And it struck us that what the government was doing was, first of all, it was identifying the liberal uh, education establishment as villains. There was a lot of vilification in the press and in public of research in education that was promoting student-centered learning, for example. And the minister actually called education researchers the blob. So that's sort of demeaning them and creating almost a cartoon character, which struck us as something like a pantomime. Here's somebody who comes on and you boo and you hiss when every time this character appears. And then you create heroes Uh, which are teachers in Shanghai. And Hong Kong was seen as almost the fairy godmother, if you like. There we go, and we'll go and see the fairy godmother, and she will grant us all our wishes. And with a wave of her magic wand, 
you know, the, the pumpkin will turn into a carriage and the England education system will turn into this beautifully high-performing model. Um, but at the same time, we thought it was quite farcical. Um, the, the underlying ideas, the way that some of the politicians actually behaved in public um, was really quite funny. And so the, when we look at the, the, the literature on um, political policymaking, you talk about political theatre. And it seemed to us, well, this kind of political theatre was more akin to pantomime than to Shakespearean drama, for example. I mean, and it is it is hilarious on one level to to just see how how wrong all of these different policymakers can pretty much get it um, because they're not necessarily taking into account any of the the historical context of these countries, um, and they're only looking for what they what they want to see. Um, I think this is yeah. I think this is actually deliberate. I, I, as one of the visitors to Hong Kong says. Don't talk to me about context. I don't believe in context. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, there, there is this, I won't call it anti-intellectualism, is part of this sidelining of the education establishment um, that has built up a body of discourse which emphasizes context. So it's part of that alienation and saying, look, I'm not interested in all that. Just give me the, the magic bullet. Just tell me what works. Um, we haven't got time to sort of change the entire system in, 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 in England and to um, worry about the ecosystem. That will follow. Let, let's give us what works and the rest will come later. So that, that's the point of view. They, they, they're just not interested in, in, in the deeper picture. That, that's not their job. Their job is to pass the policy. Implementation is up to other people. And this is why it's so troubling is because in, in the field, in our field of comparative education, recognizing that context matters and that you can't, as you said earlier, basically take a plant in one context and, and make it grow in another context has been known since the 18th and 19th centuries. And it seems like, you know, comparative educators somehow cannot get their ideas across to these policymakers. I think the whole of comparative education has been hijacked, um, often by corporate entities. Now you have these big uh, consultancy companies that come in and they will offer a comparative study of uh, 100 countries. And they'll go and they'll skim ideas and they'll do some data analysis. And often I find it highly superficial because they, they haven't had the time or the scope or the interest in digging into qualitative um, contextual issues. But that's because big data is seen as important. The, the quantitative number crunching is the way ahead. I know this um, idea is being challenged a bit, but that's been certainly the predominant approach to data collection in the past decade or so. And some comparative educators have bought into this. Uh, they've aligned themselves with this kind of work. Um, so there are, it's split the comparative education field a little bit. And, and I think we're seen as those of us who believe in context, we're seen as quite irrelevant and ivory towerish. 
we're not with it, we're not quick thinking, we're not mobile enough. Uh, I think there's an element of truth in that, but um, I, I just don't think that we really are on the policymakers' radar screen. Do you think, given what you just said, that we should just simply get rid of PISA? Like, would that make things easier and maybe more meaningful? I think we should be far more circumspect as to what PISA actually means. I mean, when, when we talk to Hong Kong people, they don't recognize the PISA ranking of the Hong Kong education system. They don't recognize Hong Kong as being second or third in the world. They, they, they say, well, no, we're at best we're second, we're second world country. You know, we're not, we're not up there. There's so many problems in the education system. So there's, there's obviously a problem between what PISA is telling us and the actual reality. But I think PISA provides some useful formative feedback to, to governments to identify areas where they could do better and areas of strength as well. But to take it as an absolute proxy measure for the quality of your education system, I think, is taking it way too far. And we must avoid fetishing big data in this way. And so I, I have nothing against PISA. Um, but it is increasingly an income-generating industry, and it's given a lot of kudos and attention, but I think we need to be very circumspect in handling the information that it provides. And this is where many countries have been more sensible. I think, I think Scotland, as an example, takes PISA scores with a pinch of salt. As, a, as one element of data to be built into the bigger picture. Well, Bob Adamson, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Will. Bob Adamson is a professor at the Education University of Hong Kong and holds the UNESCO Chair in Technical and Vocational Education and Lifelong Learning. Bob will present some of the ideas discussed today at the CIES Symposium in November. Check out freshedpodcast.com for more details about the event. Next week, I speak with David Edwards about the simplification of global learning metrics. Before signing off, I wanted to update you on a previous show. A few months ago, I interviewed Angelo Gavrilatos on Bridge International Academies in Uganda and the case of Curtis Reap, the researcher who was arrested under dubious circumstances. On Friday, October 7th, Curtis's report on Bridge International was officially launched. It contains an in-depth look at Bridge International and is worth checking out. You can find the report at freshedpodcast.com. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. Fresh Ed contributors include Rolf Straubhar, Eric Lehman, D. Brent Edwards Jr., Chrissy Monahan, and Aaron Baxter. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. Please be sure to visit us at freshedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.